בארץ ישראל קם העם היהודי. בה עוצבה דמותו הרוחנית, הדתית והמדינית. In the 16 minutes that it took David Ben-Gurion to read Israel's Declaration of Independence, a miracle occurred. It was a miracle in which the Jewish condition underwent a profound transformation. Israel ended the condition of the wandering Jew, the refugee Jew, and replaced it with a nation-state in which Jewish civilization could flourish uninhibited. For the first time in 2,000 years, or maybe even longer, Jews would not be at the mercy of anyone but themselves. Their often unsettled lives in exile were now brought home to the place firmly rooted in Jewish history, lived in by fellow Jews, and organized around the basic principles, traditions, and structures of Judaism. Where for two millennia there were uncertainties, there was now certainty. And this is the thing about Zionism that most people overlook. It wasn't just about creating a safe haven for Jews to escape persecution. The safe haven was the necessary precondition for the other goal of Zionism, to obviate the need and desire for assimilation by building a Jewish homeland. In their own place of safety, Jews would want to live openly and vibrantly as Jews. Israel now assured that they could. As the early Zionist leader Ahad Am had requested, a Jewish state, not just a state for Jews. Of course, to have your own nation is also to possess a great deal of power. This power, too, was part of the changed Jewish condition acquired in the same 16 minutes of Ben-Gurion's speech, and was also sudden and unique to Jewish history and experience. Nation-state power is the kind of power that Jews never had before. The power of a military, the power of an economy, the power to set forth national culture, and the power over others. Not just each other, but also the other the non-Jews, also living in the new state of Israel. And therein lies a perennial tension. The only way for the Jews to have and keep their own state was to ensure that they were and could maintain themselves as the majority population. In the Declaration of Independence, Israel set forth, as many countries do, lofty ideals for peace, prosperity, and equality amongst all citizens. In many ways, Israel lived up to its declared promises. And in many ways, Israel was challenged to uphold them. In its first 19 years, Israel fought a war to survive, and gathered hundreds of thousands of Jews from all corners of the globe, built the systems of government and economy, health and education, housing and highways. And Israel also struggled with integration between Mizrahi Jews and Ashkenazi Jews, between Jews and Arabs, between the right and left wings, between the old and the young. Last episode, we saw how military, political, and diplomatic forces came to a head in the run-up to the Six-Day War in 1967. But there was another important factor, too. The internal one. Israelis were looking around at the miracle they had brought about and wondering if the dream was ending. Welcome to the final episode of Season 4 here. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. What we often know about Israel is its conflicts with the Palestinians, the Arabs, the Arab Israelis, Mizrahi versus Ashkenazi, religious versus secular, and so on. 
These conflicts are essential to understanding Israel and knowing its history, but it's also a limited viewpoint about the megastory that is Israel. And I think that the megastory is Israel is this miraculous moment in history for the possibilities that are created for Jewish civilization. From Hebrew to history, Jews suddenly had this massive new opening for cultural vitality and expression. In the state, Jews could enact laws and policies, however imperfect, uniquely stamped with the Jewish experience and particularity. Across all the artistic disciplines, Israel in its early years was making a name for itself with contributions that were infused with Hebrew culture and Jewish inspiration. There was the Bezalel School of Arts and Crafts, founded by Boris Schatz in 1906, where some of Israel's foremost painters, sculptors, and designers learned their skills. A textbook from the early 1960s notes that Israel had a professional painter or sculptor for every 2,000 people, with a dozen new galleries opening every year. There was the Habimah, Israel's national theater, just the most recognized theater in a country where nearly every kibbutz, village, and town had its own amateur troupe. Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and Haifa were fast becoming major artistic centers with global recognition. Tel Aviv was a special jewel for the Jewish state, created on the beach in 1909 as a Hebrew version of a European cultural capital, a Vienna on the Mediterranean. Now, in the 1960s, well on its way, with its distinct Bauhaus architecture and an opera that saw performances from Placido Domingo and other stars. It was the city of young people, who soaked up the nightlife along Dizengoff Street and congregated in the cafes and bars until the early hours of the morning, a thriving hum of Hebrew discussing the issues of the day. Tel Aviv even had its own skyscraper, the Shalom Tower, still there today, at 400 feet then, the tallest building then in the Middle East. In 1965, Israel opened its first national museum, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, as the country's cultural centerpiece. It was befitting, said David Ben-Gurion, an ancient people, dedicated to the values of the spirit throughout its tortured history and now reviving its independence in its ancient land. It would come to house the most extensive collection of biblical and holy land archaeology in the world. Any schoolchild could come to the museum and see the same Hebrew she spoke, etched on stones from 2,500 years ago, and found just a mile or two from her home. The Israel Museum made clear the far and deep reach of Jewish art and life across the centuries. Museums throughout the country offered a new outlet for the housing, showcasing, and exploration of Jewish culture like never before seen. And there were successes on the global stage. Salah Shabati, the Israeli film about a Mizrahi immigrant family, was nominated for an Oscar in 1964, and that year won the Globe, Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film. Two years later, in 1966, Shy Agnon, the great Israeli writer, won the Nobel Prize in Literature for his Hebrew works. And it wasn't just arts, where Israel, Hebrew, and the Jews were having an impact, but also in advances in scientific knowledge, discovery, and invention. An Israeli educator friend of mine likes to point out that everyone knows about 1967, the year when Israel fought a huge war. But no one knows about 1954, the year when an Israeli scientist pioneered the technique that became the T-scan for breast cancer. Two years later, another Israeli scientist invented amniocentesis, both were huge medical breakthroughs that Israel then exported around the world. But we can also stick with that famous year of 1967. 
Israel that year developed reverse osmosis for desalinization, enabling hundreds of millions of people around the world to access clean water. And I've talked before about one of the most impactful Israelis in history. Not a general or a prime minister, but a water engineer, Simcha Blass, who invented drip irrigation. I could go on and on. The point is this. The establishment of Israel in its early years was a source of remarkable and profound pride for Jews around the world. Not because Israel was defeating the Arabs in battle, but because of all the cultural and scientific achievements that each one marked an advance for Jewish civilization and an indicator of what the Jewish people had to offer the rest of the world. It's not just about the safe haven from the Holocaust, but about how this small Zionist country could punch far above its weight. Along with all the challenges of Israel's early years were also all of these successes and a steady advancement in economic prosperity. Between that and winning wars against the Arabs, Israelis in the mid-1960s seemed to be on the upswing. The Israeli dream of safety, security, prosperity, and success was all in hand. But not for everyone. And in 1966, in the run-up to the Six-Day War, the curtain fell. As we all know from 2020, economic catastrophes have a way of magnifying social, cultural, and political problems, crystallizing resentments and turbocharging feelings of fear and dread with each new piece of bad news. In 1966, Israel was struck with a recession and a decline in Jewish immigration that seemed to some to augur the end of the Zionist dream. The recession in 1966 split Israel's fault lines, bringing to the surface simmering disagreements and existential questions about just who was this Israeli nation for. As in all economic hard times, those who suffer the most were those who were already suffering the most. In this case, the Mizrahi Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, who already dealt with disinvestment, discrimination, and a struggle for dignity. Israel's politics, culture, and economy were dominated by the Ashkenazi, the European Jews, who had made up 80% of Israel's population in 1948. Now, the Mizrahi were slightly more than half the population, but were shuffled off to neighborhood slums or development towns out in the desert where the Ashkenazi could try to look away. But the recession brought their plight out into the open, as unemployment surged, anger at the government's failures increased, and a sense of deep dejection overtook the Mizrahi community. This time, the Ashkenazi couldn't look away. It was in the newspapers, and the Mizrahi staged protests in the heart of Tel Aviv. The Ashkenazi had to acknowledge that the Zionist melting pot wasn't, after all, working so well. The twin pillars of Israeli identity and integration, schools and the army, were failing the Mizrahi in ways that became apparent by the impact of the recession. But this also had the effect of heightening Ashkenazi anxieties about the direction of Israel. They didn't like the changing demographics and what that meant for Israeli identity and culture. The Zionist movement had been predicated on creating a European society in the Middle East, but the Mizrahi made it look ever more Middle Eastern. For the Ashkenazi, the point of education in the army was to integrate the Mizrahi by bringing them into European culture. Where the Mizrahi felt alienated by the Europeanism, the Ashkenazi felt they were sliding backwards into Orientalism. 
The Ashkenazi elite failed to appreciate the unique cultural contributions of their Jewish cousins, and in so doing felt they were losing Israel's national character. The recession then exacerbated these ethnic tensions, engendering a feeling amongst both Ashkenazi and Mizrahi that they really didn't know each other's worlds and that their own identities were getting lost. The recession exposed not just racial animosity, but generational struggle as well. The 60s were the 60s, right? The Ashkenazi Jews who had been young in 1948 were now parents of a new native-born Israeli generation. The founding generation of Zionists identified strongly with the state of Israel, believed in the importance of national unity, held dearly to the value of sacrifice, and stuck to the socialist ideology that propelled the Zionist movement. They were the pioneers who forged new cities and towns, fought bravely to establish the state, and for the last 18 years had weathered the struggles to enjoy a period of steady growth and increasing prosperity. At least if you were Ashkenazi. But as the recession hit, clobbering the national mood, the founding generation saw British fast food joints and American cars. They saw young people looking to leave the kibbutz for the nightlife of Tel Aviv. They saw young soldiers weary of war and cynical about army service. In 1963, one of Israel's most acclaimed writers, A.B. Yehoshua, had published a novel called The Last Commander, about a group of soldiers who reject the hard work and discipline of soldiering in order to sleep away their days. This kind of individualism, what we might call Americanization, it deeply worried the founding generation. All in all, writes the historian Tom Segev, more and more Israelis had started to lose faith in themselves and sink into depression. They feared, he wrote, that the country was losing its ability to offer citizens the good life that many had grown accustomed to. The recession touched everyone, even the elite Ashkenazi and their institutions, so that the national mood sank into depression and anxiety as 1966 turned into 1967. As long as the country seemed to be forging a stable society that was integrating within the Western world and offered its population both shared and personal growth, writes Segev, people could believe in the Israeli dream. But now, he concludes, the recession, Mizrahi poverty, and mounting anxiety about the loss of Western identity abruptly showed them how distant that dream really was. <laughs> Amidst the recession and its attendant challenges, many Israelis saw another injustice. The Jewish state, in their view, was incomplete. Few people realize this, but nearly all of the most sacred Jewish sites the Western Wall in Jerusalem's Old City, the Cave of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs in Hebron, Rachel's Tomb in Bethlehem, numerous other places associated with biblical figures and ancient places of Jewish worship, all of them are located in the West Bank, which, remember, was occupied by Jordan from 1948 to 1967. The Jewish state, then, was missing some of the most important Jewish places, as if the United States didn't have access to Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Washington. For religious Jews, this posed a profound spiritual problem, as the redemption of the Jewish people depended on their sovereignty in the historic land of Israel. And for the secular, this was an unfulfilled part of the Zionist vision, in which the Jewish state would encompass the entire ancient territory. There was a real sense that something deep and connected was missing. 
This feeling was expressed in a song debuted during Israel's Independence Day celebrations on May 15, 1967, at the same time that Yitzhak Rabin was getting reports of the Egyptians moving tanks into the Sinai. The song was called Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, Jerusalem of Gold, and was written by a young songwriter named Naomi Shemer and sung by Shuli Natan. It was about the loss of the Second Temple 2,000 years ago, but it expressed the spiritual dislocation still felt by many Jews. And in the slumber of tree and stone, goes the lyrics, captured in her dream the city that sits solitary, and in its midst is a wall. The song laments empty marketplaces, dried up cisterns, and the loss of visitors to the Temple Mount. And yet, as Naomi Shemer writes, even the smallest of the youngest children remember Jerusalem and long for it. The song touched off a nerve, enhancing what's been called the messianic impulse of Israeli history. Israeli Major General Gershon HaKohen quotes from Ben-Gurion the logic of his impulse. Back in 1937, Ben-Gurion had accepted the idea of partitioning Palestine, carving out only a piece of the territory for the future Jewish homeland. Amidst the criticism that he was selling the Zionist dream short, Ben-Gurion said, In this territory on which the Jewish state is supposed to be established, there is no possibility of solving the Jewish question. However, the offer can serve as a decisive stage on the path to the greater fulfillment of Zionism. It will give Jewish power itself a foothold in the land in the shortest possible time, leading us to the true realization of our historical aspirations. In other words, Ben-Gurion recognized that the Zionist dream wouldn't be fulfilled in this small bit of territory. But for now, it was just the first stepping stone towards the Jews reclaiming all of their ancient territory. They got a step closer after the War of Independence brought them more territory, and then for 19 years, no progress was made. But now, on the cusp of a looming war with the Arabs in 1967, some saw an opportunity to take the West Bank from Jordan in order to reclaim the Jewish holy sites. This messianic impulse is not the reason for the Six-Day War, but it was certainly an element of it, and explains partly why Israel and Jordan went to war. It's a complex question and a complicated answer, and we'll come back to it another time. But the point is that Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, Jerusalem of gold, and its bittersweet mourning of what was still lost to the Jewish people, added to the national mood, which was now turning from anxious and depressed to downright apocalyptic. Some historians have pointed out that in looking back to the period just before the Six-Day War, Israelis were far more terrified than they should have been. Of course, the situation was very serious, but Israel's leaders were confident that Israel would prevail in a war against the Arabs. They had the military strength, and if they took the initiative and attacked first, which is what they were planning, then the outcome was almost assured. It's not that we shouldn't be scared of a war coming and all the pain that it would bring, but Israelis in the three weeks leading up to the war were more than scared. They were completely in a panic. Of course, the rhetoric coming from the Arab side gave sound to Israel's silent fear. President Nazar of Egypt promised to annihilate Israel. He said, our basic objective will be to destroy Israel. 
I probably could not have said such things five or even three years ago. Today I say such things because I am confident. The Palestine Liberation Organization, the terrorist group, promised that no Jews would be left alive. Diabolical threats came pouring in as the Arabs whipped up their populations with guarantees that this would be the final battle. Israelis turned to traumatic history, both ancient and recent, to exemplify their fears. Israel's foreign minister, Abba Ibn, said at the end of May, I was gripped by a sharp awareness of the fragility of all cherished things. For the whole of that day in Tel Aviv and far into the night in Jerusalem, our minds revolved around the question of survival. So it must have been in ancient days, with Babylon or Assyria at the gates. He later added that Israel had learned from Jewish history that no outrage against its men, women, and children was inconceivable. Memories of the European slaughter were taking form and substance in countless Israeli hearts. Golda Meir anguished that she had failed in the past to convince the world of Israel's security needs. Why had it seemed so simple and so obvious to us, but so impossible of attainment to everyone else, she asked. Hadn't we explained the realities of our life and our part of the world properly? Had I made some dreadful mistake or left something crucial unsaid? In the three weeks leading up to the war, the time known as Hamtana, the waiting period, Golda Meir watched as Israelis in every corner of the country steeled themselves for a terrible fight. She recalled that every city prepared their local parks to serve as makeshift cemeteries, hotel guests were sent packing so the rooms could be used as hospitals, food was stockpiled, air raid shelters were built, grandparents dug trenches for their grandchildren to take cover in. Ordinary life, she said, came to an end. Each day seemed to contain double the number of hours, and each hour seemed endless. We can understand this dread as not only a product of an impending war, but the national mood that preceded it. Israelis were already feeling down and out. They were already wondering if the great Zionist experiment had run its course and the Israeli dream was coming to an end. And now this was added. Not just economic ruin or the collapse of an ideology, but the possible physical destruction of Israel as well. The nation had been built with the determination that a holocaust would never befall the Jewish people again. The promise that there would never again be such a thing as a helpless Jewish refugee. It was right there in the Declaration of Independence. Every possible soldier was hunkered down on the front lines, his and her families waiting back home, sometimes just a few miles away, living and dying with every piece of news. Ashkenazi or Mizrahi, young or old, new immigrant or native-born. All of them, said Golda Meir, two and a half million Jews, each and every one of whom felt personally responsible for the survival of the state of Israel, waited for what would come next. At 7.45 in the morning, on June 5th, 1967, a great rumbling filled the skies. The sound of warplanes. It had begun. Avirarim tzalul kayayin v'reyach oranim Nisa v'ruach arabayim im kol pa'amodim All right, well that's a wrap on season four here at Jew I Don't Know, Israel from 1948 to 1967. Of course, I'm going back now and being like, man, I should have talked about that. I should have talked about that. But, you know, 
another time. I'm going to use the pandemic as the excuse for why it took me nearly a year to complete this season. This was definitely a long haul, but don't worry. Do you want to know? We'll be back with a season five. As usual, I'll be taking a little time off to work on the next season, but don't unsubscribe or forget about me. I'm working, I'm working, I promise. In the meantime, you can visit my website, jewidonno.com. There's tons of content already there, and I'll be posting more. And you can sign up for my email list. I don't email that often, and if you do sign up, you will get a heads up about next season's topic, which I'm already working on. So a little incentive there. And of course, you can also email me at jewidonnopodcast at gmail.com. So the website, jewidonno.com, or my email, jewidonnopodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you to you for listening and telling everyone you know about this podcast. I know you are, and if you haven't yet told everyone, please do. Please also take a moment to rate this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. And normally, I would thank the staff at my local Pete's Coffee where I sit to write most of these episodes, but alas, only about half this season was written there. I'm rolling with mobile orders for my lattes these days. I can't wait to get back to my table. Today's music was Hadudim, a popular folk group, and the original recording of Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, sung by Shuli Natan, and the same song sung again by Naomi Shemer, songwriter. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Know. Thank you all so much for listening. I really love doing this. I will be back with season five before you know it. Lehitra out. See you later. Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, 